A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Hi, folks. It's Catherine Murphy here. I just want to draw your attention to a really fantastic new series on the Full Story podcast. Uh, the series is called Ben Robert Smith versus the Media, and it chronicles the defamation action Australia's most decorated living soldier has been waging against three newspapers. You can listen to all five episodes on Full Story now. I really encourage you to do so. The series is fantastic. Uh, and here is today's episode of Australian Politics. Stand by. I think that that is one of the roles of the federal government is the coordination uh, around disaster response. You know, it's always going to be led, I think, by state governments, um, the immediate disaster response, but we have the capacity to bring resources together from across the country, you know, rather than this sort of ad hoc kind of arrangements that we've got in place at the moment. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, and you're on Australian politics. And uh, with me this week from Brisbane is Murray Watt, uh, who is, well, everyone's busy. It's the week before the budget, but uh, Murray's particularly busy because he is the Minister for Emergency Management, and he's also the Minister for Agriculture. And uh, everybody listening will be aware that there are significant flood events continuing to play out, certainly uh, in the eastern part of the country. And the first thing to say before we get into this conversation is, uh, obviously, we send all good wishes to people who are struggling uh, with the practicality of managing yet another natural disaster. Uh, so, you know, sending every good wish to people, uh, it's just, you know, it's just hell in some parts of the country. But, um, Murray, we need to sort of move, I think, from the practical experience that people have at the moment out there into the helicopter view of these events. Obviously, we're only a few days out from the Albanese government's first budget. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has said uh, that uh, these flood events, uh, well, they're sort of two, they're a kind of late-breaking item in the budget. Uh, there'll be costs associated with them, of course, and there, there's also an inflationary impact associated with what's going on. Why don't you take us through what's playing out on the ground and and what do you think about, you know, how, how does it impact the budget? Um, yeah, thanks, Murph, and thanks for having me on. Uh, long-time listener, first-time participant. <laughs> uh, hopefully it won't be disappointing. Um, yeah, obviously, as you say, these floods that we're seeing pretty much across the east coast of the country, including Tasmania, are uh, having a really dev devastating impact on on lives, on communities, uh, on the environment. 
um, and happy to talk you through sort of what I've been seeing over the last few days. Uh, but then even beyond that human and environmental impact, there's obviously a massive economic impact from these floods as there is every time we see one of these large-scale disasters. Uh, I, I remember even back to my days in the Queensland government budget numbers having to be adjusted often quite late in the piece because of big flooding events. I remember that happened in the 2011 Brisbane floods. And now that I'm part of the federal government, I remember it's happened under the former government and now it's happening now. So they really do have those consequences. I think um, what I'd observe is in terms of what's happening on the ground is that um, having now been into Western New South Wales, Victoria, and Tasmania over the last week. And, you know, not that long ago, spending time in the Hawkesbury, uh, which has, of course, had multiple events. Um, I've obviously spent a lot of time in northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland. I think there's probably a bit of a difference in terms of how communities are reacting when you compare the areas that have had multiple events and those which are experiencing it for the first time in a while. So um, yesterday, for example, I was in Tasmania with the Prime Minister and you know, what I find is that people always like to compare current events to previous ones, and sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. And what we were picking up in Tasmania yesterday was that, uh, in fact, the floodwaters people experienced this time in some parts were worse than what they had experienced in 2016. But, you know, there's a six-year gap uh, between the two flooding events that they're comparing. And interestingly, one of the really positive bits of feedback, which I've relayed to Tanya Plibersek, uh, who's responsible for the Bureau of Meteorology, is that this time people felt that they'd had a lot more warning um, of uh, the floodwaters coming, which uh, allowed them to either, you know, move furniture or move mm. stock if they were a small business or to move livestock if they were a farmer. So that that was good to see that improvement. But I guess I can I contrast what's happening in Tasmania and Victoria, where it's been quite some time since people have experienced a big flood, compared to what's now happening in Western New South Wales, where there are some people we we met um, with the Prime Minister the other day um, who have had their fifth flood just this calendar year. And then, of course, you've got places like the Hawkesbury, who've had, in some cases, four floods over the last 18 months, two years. And I think what I'd say is that in the, in the areas where um, they're having the first flood for a while. There's a there's a sort of a level of shock and surprise, um, and in some cases even bewilderment by mm. the, the the fast running nature of these waters. You know, you get a lot of comments uh, from people that with not only that this is the biggest flood they've had for a while, but just the volume of rain and the and the speed with which the the waters are moving is something that seems to be emerging as a trend, and that's a bit different to what I hear when I go to the Hawkesbury. Um, or the Northern Rivers, which is that people are really, you know, just ground down by these events coming, you know, only months apart. And, you know, people, obviously every time one of these events impact occurs, people have got massive cleanup tasks, there's an effect on people's mental health. Uh, and then if they face it again in six months' time, I think, or three months' time, people have that sense of just not being able to move forward uh, with mm -hmm. their lives. So, yeah, it's interesting to see the sort of different psychological impacts of these different types of events. In terms of the budget, 
yeah, there's no doubt that these events will have a massive impact on our budget and Treasurer Jim Chalmers has made that point uh, because we always make a provision in the federal budget for the repair costs and the disaster payments that flow from these types of events. And you factor in what may or may not happen in doing that. But when you when you're hit by something of this scale, it has an even bigger effect. And Jim's obviously also talked about the inflationary impact that these yeah. events are likely to have. You know, that was one of the reasons why we were all paying $12 for an iceberg lettuce earlier in the year was that the Lockyer Valley west of Brisbane, one of our big food bowls for the country was wiped out by floods and no one could get lettuce. And unfortunately, I think we're likely to see those sort of things again arising from this event. And it sort of means in terms of the inflation picture, uh, I think there was a hope sort of in forecasts that we were talking about even a couple of months ago that uh, some of the trends we're seeing would start to sort of unwind really over over the next 12 months. But energy prices continue to be stubbornly high. These events will, as you say, sort of set up another price increase cycle in in um, in groceries and other things because, you know, there's less, there'll be less product, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think in an overall sense, I'm not concerned about food shortages for the country. We're obviously mm. very fortunate to be a big um, food producing nation, but I think it's quite likely that for certain products, we may be seeing shortages and that that would drive up prices. You know, obviously, uh, some of the areas that have been hit, particularly in Western New South Wales and Victoria, are big grain growing areas. Um, so you'd, you'd expect to see some impacts there. Uh, but But I don't think as a whole, we're looking at you know, massive shortages across the board. I mean, one interesting factoid that we were made aware of this week is that ABARES, the Agriculture Department's Economic Forecasting Agency, has said that the council areas across the country that have been impacted by these floods uh, produce 24% of national agricultural production. So that's not, I'm not saying that we're about to lose 24% of agricultural mm. production, mm. but the area of land um, that is now hit by these floods basically delivers a quarter of our nation's food. And it's reasonable to think that a fair bit of that will have been impacted because it's not only, you know, the crops that are destroyed or the animals that may be lost uh, in these floods, it's the impact on roads and infrastructure that make yeah. it harder for farmers to get things to market. Uh, I've met so many farmers who are having trouble getting machinery on the ground because it gets bogged. So it's all those sort of flow-on impacts as well. Yeah, and it's sort of like... You know, you you talking a minute ago about the different sort of psychological impacts, right, apart from obviously the costs that we're canvassing. It's, it's really quite interesting because, as you say, people around the Hawkesbury uh, have dealt with multiple events uh, in, in quick succession and, and in uh, the in northern New South Wales. Um, but it's sort of like obviously we know what the climate science tells us about the climate crisis having you know, more extreme weather events. We're in the cycle of extreme weather events. Obviously, we sort of, uh, we, we're getting to a point where these events are now so frequent, and I, I sort of hesitate to say this to a Queenslander because <laughs> natural disasters, you know, you're kind of like it's the home state of natural disasters, mm. right? We, we live it every year in Ex some way, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No disrespect to Queenslanders, right? But uh, we can see things are changing, Right, that that is obvious. We're we're living in it. It's not hypothetical. We don't have to speculate about it. Things are changing. I read a piece, a very interesting piece, recently in the New Yorker about a, a workforce uh, that basically, um, you know, goes around cleaning up 
uh, after extreme weather events in the States, you know, be they the like massive superstorms, hurricanes, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, this was a migrant workforce that was incredibly exploited. I guess that sort of preamble's taking me to, I think we do, don't we, have to look at this seriously as a country, right? We've got some of the extreme weather is is baked in. There's not even with mitigation, we're not going to be able to change it. Some of some of the, the, the climate change we're seeing is forever. These disasters are more frequent. At the moment, we've sort of got this structure of volunteers, call out the ADF, um, you know, there's a patchwork between the Commonwealth and the states. I mean, do we need to be thinking about a standing workforce that can be brought in to deal with natural disasters. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. I think you sort of had thought about this out loud a couple of times, and I'm interested in what you, you've obviously been in the portfolio now for a few months. What do you think? Yeah, it's something I definitely have been giving some thought to, Catherine, and talking with some of my colleagues, including, you know, Defence Minister Richard Miles, because we we have increasingly relied on the Defence Forces to play a big role in the cleanup and recovery operations. And I do think we need to be careful to not stretch them too far, given they've actually got you know, a core job, which is keeping the nation safe in an increasingly uncertain world. Yep. Um, but but having, you know, I, I think there will always be a role for the Defence Forces. They they bring particular skills and equipment to bear. And you can't underestimate the morale boost that it gives communities to see those camouflaged uniforms in there lending a hand. So I think they will play a role, but I don't think we can rely on them as the only source of labour um, in these situations. Of course, as you say, there's many volunteer groups. You know, you see all those great pictures of communities banding together um, to help with this. But but I do think that this is a, a key part of making sure that we are better prepared as a country for what lies ahead. I was saying, you know, both before the election and afterwards, that if there were two things that I wanted to do differently in this space compared to the former government, it was making sure that we are better prepared for what's coming and that we respond a lot more quickly and effectively. And, you know, we've obviously made a range of structural changes, creating a new national emergency management agency, setting up a new uh, resilience fund. But the stuff that you're talking about is an important part of it as well. I think I think we can do a better job as a country of providing a more coordinated response to these sorts of disasters. And, you know, it's not going to be necessary for every flood, but when we see these large-scale uh, events that particular communities may simply not have the resources to be able to deal with their own. We're going to need to be able to supply extra sources. And I mean, I remember after the Black Summer bushfires, one of the things that I was giving some thought to is whether we do need to have what other countries have, which is sort of a semi-professional firefighting Mm. um, service in addition to the professional firefighters and the volunteers. Um, Because of course, you know, bushfires tend to hit us in a relatively concentrated part of the year. We don't necessarily need people employed to deal with those bushfires for 12 months a year, but there may be a case for uh, a semi-professional group that works is contracted for a certain part of the year, for instance. And I think it's a bit the same with floods. I mean, I think that there, there, there are a range of groups out there ranging from the ADF to SES paid and volunteer staff to Mindaroo Foundation is now playing in this space of, of um, cleanup. There's a group called Disaster Relief Australia that's doing it, which is basically veterans volunteers. And I think that 
that is one of the roles of the federal government is the coordination uh, uh, around disaster response. You know, it's it's always going to be led, I think, by state governments, the disaster, immediate disaster response, but we have the capacity to bring resources together from across the country. And um, I do think that we, we do need to rethink, rather than this sort of ad hoc kind of arrangements that we've got in place at the moment, which take a lot of coordination every time we have one of these events, trying to put some better systems in place so that we can just call on a, a, a systematic response every time one of these kind of events occurs. Would it be an option, because we've obviously talked about the Defence Forces and you've referenced a conversation that you've had with your colleague Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, uh, like, would it be an option, I don't know, to have part of the Australian Defence Force quarantined to do this work, right? Like, a, a, oh, I, mean, I haven't got the terminology, but a branch of the ADF or something. Because I guess the, the, the challenge, and you've kind of alluded to it, apart from the cost, obviously, is the sort of, well, seasonal nature of the work, right? You don't necessarily have to have someone employed for you know, 365 days a year, right, in order to be scrambled to a disaster. So, I mean, like, you're clearly thinking about it. Have you got a model in mind? Uh, not at this stage, and but we are actually undertaking some policy work in this space at the moment. Um, it, it probably won't be ready for this uh, disaster season, which is already upon us realistically, but it's something that we do want to progress over the next 12 months or so. Um, I had a really constructive meeting with Richard and his Defence Force officials about this a few weeks back, and we've mm -hmm. now got our respective agencies working on this on this piece. It's probably too early to say exactly what that means for the Defence Force, and it's really a decision for Richard how he wants to, and his officials as to how they want to structure the Defence Forces. But I think that there are a range of options for how we meet this need. Um, you know, there are different people who at different times have talked about an army reserve style outfit yep. um, mm -hmm. uh, catering towards disasters for people who may not necessarily want to be reservist in a military setting, but they might be willing to do so in this kind of setting. Um, it, it, it may be that we work with the states to undertake a massive recruitment campaign around SES services or it, or as a, we made an election commitment to provide extra funding to that group I mentioned, Disaster Relief Australia, who are basically, who mobilise veteran volunteers and, and volunteers who have first responder experience, which is pretty akin to the kind of uh, work that we're talking about here. So um, I don't have a closed mind as to different options. I mean, again, it's a matter for Richard and his officials, how they structure the Defence Forces, but I'm not really sure that we're looking at a, a, a particular branch of the Defence Forces that focuses on this because we do need to make sure that they're allowed to focus on their core mission. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but this work is at a fairly early stage and... The only thing I can really tell you is that we need to do it differently, um, but we've got a pretty open mind as to exactly what the model should be. Because it's sort of, yeah, I mean, the adaptation task, like more generally, uh, and obviously Jenny McAllister, I think in the ministerial structure has responsibility for that directly working under Chris Bowen, who's the climate minister. But obviously this this has got deep resonances for your own portfolio, right? Like you are mm. you are Mr. Adaptation, Murray, in terms of where, you, mm. where you're sitting, right? Do you think that the... I'm adapting pretty quickly, I can well, tell you. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, having to adapt pretty yeah, quickly. <laughs> at warp speed, I imagine. Um, but it's sort of, but it's important though, right? And and putting putting that structure around it that you're talking about is, is part of, I guess, 
guess, preparing the Australian public for what's ahead. I mean, I don't want to, you know, scare people, you know, as you're eating your Wheaties on Saturday morning listening to us. I don't want to come across as entirely, you know, sort of doomsaying or eoring. But the reality is before us, right? It is, yeah. it's, it's not. We can we can all see it. In terms of the and and I accept the. Can policy. I just say? Can I just say yeah. one thing on that, Catherine? I mean, I, I I agree with you. Um, and I think none of us want to scare those people eating their wedies at the moment. But I actually find that I, I suspect that most people listening to this would would not find this particularly confronting because, as you say, we're living it now. We yeah. all know it. The problem, of course, has been that we've you know certain people in our political system have been in denial about these things for a while and. I've actually found most of the feedback I've been getting is that people are finding it reassuring um, that we finally have a government that is actually starting to deal with these issues and and is thinking differently, is cooperating both internally within government and with our state and territory counterparts, uh, rather than that kind of bickering that we used to see through previous disasters, which just left people stranded. I mean, you've mentioned Jenny McAllister and Chris Bowen, and I've had some very close discussions with them, along with Richard, along with Tanya Plibersek. And the fact that we've actually got our ministers working together and bringing our different agencies together with the different roles that they can play does help build a more coordinated response. And, and again, that's one of the reasons why we we set up this new national emergency management agency was because previously under the former government, you had one branch being Emergency Management Australia, which dealt with all of the immediate response to disasters. And, then you, and that was in one department with one minister. You had the National Recovery and Resilience Agency uh, sitting in a different department with a different minister, and we brought them together to provide that more coordinated response. Um, and, and similarly, we're working incredibly hard to be cooperative with the states, and I think that's producing results. It's meaning that we're actually able to get defence force resources out more quickly because we, we, we start working together at an early stage before the event occurs. Um, we're able to get the disaster payments out more quickly because we're getting early warning from the states about what they might be needing. So I think that you know, taking that kind of mature, forward-looking response is exactly what the community was wanting to see in this space. And, and, and I think it gives confidence to people going through hard times that they can see their governments working uh, closely together rather than, you know, bickering and, and point scoring. And do you think you can maintain that collaboration? Obviously, the body of work that you're embarking on now is is really important and and will be transformative in terms of, you know, I don't know where you'll land and neither do you, but but I think we're, we're explaining to the listeners clearly that this means, you know, more people available as their profession uh, or part of their profession to be available in cleanup work. But do you think the collaboration might fracture when it comes to the cost of that? Because obviously the Commonwealth's uh, got a role, the states have got a role. I, I imagine the Commonwealth's not going to want to take entire financial responsibility for whatever that ends up being or looking like. Do you reckon <laughs> Do you reckon love, peace and harmony survives, you know, a, a bucket of money or, or not? I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, so far so good on that front, um, Catherine. I mean, I'm, I'm even though I've only been in the role for a few months, I've now been dealing with the New South Wales government over a series of different natural disasters, and we are doing so again now. And it's no secret that we're on politically different sides of the fence, but there's been extremely good collaboration uh, up until now in every one of those events about payments, about uh, army support and other things as well. Obviously, you know, who pays for things is always going to be a point 
of contention, but we've been able to have very sensible discussions uh, with the states. Sometimes, you know, and they, they want to get money announced for their, for their communities quickly, and sometimes we need them to provide a level of evidence that they may not have immediately um, because we don't want to be just writing blank checks for people. But we've been able to come to good arrangements where in some cases they might go out and announce their contribution first and then it's followed up with ours. So there are ways through this by just, as I say, being mature and responsible about these things. You know, the, the, the Ministerial Council for Emergency Management Ministers has been working very cooperatively, as has the agriculture one that I obviously sit on as well. And I, I think it wasn't just the entire community that got tired of that confrontational, you know, approach where prime ministers would leak text messages from premiers and all that kind of stuff when people are doing it tough. I think the ministers in these governments were tired of that sort of approach as well and are responding really well to a more collaborative approach and that can only be good for the community. Uh, I want to I want to get on to some agriculture related issues in just a tick, but just just finally on this, insurance is also a big issue, yep. right? And I don't know to what extent, in portfolio terms, that lands with you. I would imagine you have some you have some input or responsibility into that. Uh, you know, I've talked in the past, not on the pod, but you and I have talked in the past about these sort of insurance issues. There was the reinsurance scheme for North Queensland that Warren Ench kind of prosecuted. But it's sort of, that's that's a big policy conundrum too, isn't it? As well as the sort of adaptation challenge, we're sort of in a situation where, you know, parts of the country are becoming uninsurable. So or in terms of, so what do you what do you do on that front? Yeah, it's it, it's absolutely a big problem, and and it's clearly getting worse. And frankly, it's much more widespread than I realised. Uh, insurance as a policy area sits with Stephen Jones as the assistant treasurer, uh, but I've been working closely with him on this because I guess it's it's me in my role who more often than not meets the people who who don't have insurance mm. or weren't able to afford insurance. And, you know, again, I guess as a Queenslander, I was well aware that there were there had been a significant problem in North Queensland for some time with people, you know, just not not being able to afford insurance or not being able to get it. And and I think a lot of people, particularly city residents, don't necessarily realise the scale of this problem. You know, we're not talking about people having to pay $5,000 a year to insure their home, which is steep enough as it is. We're talking about people having to pay $20,000 or more every year. Um, And what I hadn't realised, as I say, is how widespread it is. And as I've now travelled from disaster area to disaster area, it was one of the things that came through in Lismore. It comes up every time I go to the Hawkesbury. On the weekend, I was in Seymour in in central Victoria, uh, and that was basically the only thing people wanted to talk to me about there. Mm. And I don't know that we've fully recognised exactly how widespread this problem is. It, it, it affects homeowners um, with the kind of figures that we're talking about there. And, and let's face it, a lot of the time, unfortunately, people who do live on flood-prone regions tend to be more disadvantaged members of our community and can't can't afford those sorts of premiums. In North Queensland, it's affecting people living in apartment blocks because body corporates can't get insurance because of cyclones. I remember medical practices in Lismore um, who were facing uh, insurance premiums in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what that is all about in the end is about this elevated level of risk. Um, you know, insurers base their premiums on risk levels. And as the risk level continues to rise alongside climate impacts, then premiums go up. So 
you know, we're pretty sceptical and remain pretty sceptical about the North Queensland reinsurance pool. You know, it hasn't yet delivered the savings that people were promised by the former government, and I'm not completely certain that it will. But that's where this whole investment in mitigation and resilience comes in, because if we can be reducing the risk of damage from natural disasters, that should flow on to premium reductions for people. Um, I know there's a good example I can give from Queensland, the town of Roma, um, when it used to flood all the time, when it built a flood levy, insurance premiums came down significantly. Uh, and that's the reasoning, I guess, behind this new disaster ready fund that we're creating, you know, spending up to $200 million a year on disaster mitigation, flood levies, drainage improvements, bushfire protections. And that should have some flow on impact to insurance premiums. But um, my God, it's such a huge task and, and there's a lot more work to do. Well, it's, yeah, it is. It's sort of mind-boggling. Bog- mind the whole thing that we're talking about, the whole sort of transition picture that we're talking about is is mind-bogglingly large and complex. And, uh, and yeah, it's an important point you make. Obviously, if you, if, you, if you lower the risk in a location, in a setting, surely, surely that flows through to, you know, that risk premium adjustment in terms of insurance. But I've got this well and truly in the back of my mind as being this sort of, you know, slow-moving disaster waiting to happen. But anyway, there we go. Mm. Just one more thing, ag-related. Um, I wrote a story several months ago saying that the the government was considering signing at, at the international level the methane pledge, global methane pledge. Uh, you popped, uh, bobbed up about a week ago, sounding very supportive of that. Uh, and the National Farmers Federation, which has been historically opposed to this, also put out a statement I think it's fair to say, Murray, not gushing with delight, but uh, but not screaming the house down either. Now, the NFF in their statement said that they had reached agreement with you on a number of fronts so that in the event the government signs the methane pledge, that the farm sector would have transitional assistance and various other things. What have you actually agreed with them? Or are they sort of... Are they are they uh, <laughs> are they sort of uh, getting out ahead of where where you might have landed? No, I didn't have any issues with the statement that the NFF put out and uh, and it reflects the position of most of the agriculture groups that I've dealt with on this issue over the last couple of months. Um, obviously, you know, we've said that we are considering uh, signing the Global Methane Pledge and that we've been consulting on it quietly about that for some time now. Uh, and you would have seen publicly, I have said that we aren't considering a methane tax or the sort of things that the New Zealand government has uh, chosen to do. And one of the reasons for that is that agriculture uh, constitutes a much higher proportion of New Zealand's emissions than it does in Australia. I think agriculture constitutes close to half of the emissions from New Zealand, whereas it's about 16% here. And I guess that might be why New Zealand has chosen to go down a bit more of a drastic path than what we need to do here. I mean, one of the reasons why I have said that, you know, should we decide to sign this pledge that I'm comfortable with its impacts on agriculture? Well, I suppose there's a couple of reasons. For starters, I have found that the agriculture peak bodies and farmers are already moving in this direction at a rapid uh, speed. Um, I think one of the biggest problems for the agriculture sector over the last few years is that their position on these issues has been consistently misrepresented by the National Party who claim to represent farmers. You know, I've said before, almost every farm I go on to as the minister sustainability and climate change is usually raised with me by farmers within minutes of arriving on their property. They're doing these things already and the stats show that. 
And that's why you may have seen, you know, there's been some very supportive comments from industry uh, when this debate blew up again lately about methane. I was doing a press conference in Darwin last week with the, the Northern Territory livestock exporters saying they were sick of being used as passengers in, in the climate wars. And, you know, they, they are doing these things already. And importantly, uh, what I find is that agriculture leaders very much understand that our continued ability to trade overseas is connected to us continuing to improve our sustainability uh, measures. We see what's coming out of the EU and increasingly other countries as well, that if we want to be able to export to these countries, we're going to have to demonstrate that we are meeting higher sustainability standards. So for people who say they're representatives of the agriculture sector or rural Australia to be wanting to continue pursuing these climate wars and continuing to argue that we don't need to make changes, actually they're the ones who are a threat to farmers. Um, because we will find that our export markets are cut off uh, and that's not exactly helping farmers or rural Australia. So, you know, I think, you know, should we decide to sign up to this pledge, which after all is an aspirational goal rather than a binding target that largely reflects the work that industry is already doing, it's a bit hard to understand how that's going to be a threat to the Aussie barbecue as, you know, some of those hyperbolic comments we saw over the last week would suggest. Mm. Yeah, and just on trade, given you raised it, the last thing um, I, I've been fascinated. Uh, this isn't your portfolio, but you'll you will have a very direct interest in this in the event that it moves to fruition. I've been fascinated, uh, somewhat amazed, to see major business groups using the submission process to consultations around the safeguard mechanism, which is a climate policy thing, guys. If you if you're unfamiliar with it, I won't bore you with the ins and outs of it. But anyway, there's a consultation process around a mechanism to reduce emissions at the moment. Uh, a couple of major Australian business groups have said we should do our own carbon border adjustment scheme here in Australia. Now, if you've missed this debate just very quickly, uh, Murray a minute ago referenced the difficulties that Australian exports may have if we don't take climate action. Now, the reason for that is the US and the EU are contemplating these things called carbon border adjustment mechanisms so that if you are exporting goods from a country that isn't serious about climate change, you may face a penalty at the border. That's the simplest way to explain these things. Now, Australian businesses that were screaming blue murder literally not five minutes ago about the impacts of CBAMs, as they're called, carbon, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, are now calling for one for Australia. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously that falls in Chris Bowen's portfolio, so I don't want to speak for him. But but what I, what I could say more generally is that um, we have seen a massive turnaround in community opinion and industry opinion on these issues over the last few years. And I guess I sort of saw that really unfold up close due to the work that I did in central Queensland um, over the last few years where, you know, heading into that 2019 federal election where the Adani debate completely derailed Labor's campaign and we, got, we were punished at the ballot box for that. I remember even really over the three years, you could literally feel the change in community sentiment as people became more aware of what was actually involved rather than all the scare campaigns that they had been subjected to. And as you saw, you know, aluminium smelters in Gladstone increasingly move towards renewable sources of power or hydrogen um, energy use, because again, they were competing with other companies overseas who were moving in this direction, I think that really contributed towards the community understanding that these things could be done without jeopardising jobs and in actual fact were 
essential to make these changes if we wanted to keep these jobs uh, because other countries were going to get the work and get the export contracts if we didn't do the same thing. And I guess it's the same with agriculture. I think that farmers, you know, they 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 want to be sustainable um, custodians of their land in, in almost every case that I've dealt with. Um, they know that their future incomes are tied to sustainable use of the resources that they use. And in addition now, they have a further trade imperative. So I think I think the community, you know, including this rural Australia, just got so far ahead of where the last government was at that they're actually really happy to now have a government who's prepared to get behind what industry is doing and actually start showing some leadership on these issues. Well, <laughs> we'll see how the story ends ultimately. But, yeah, but, you know, obviously the election result in May suggests that the community has come a long way between uh, 2019 and 2022. So thank you for your time, Murray. It's busy. Um, you know, we're literally five minutes to midnight on the budget and uh, floods are continuing continuing to peak around the place. So I appreciate you making the time to have a conversation with me and the listeners. It's the budget next week. God help us. We'll be back then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.